Welcome to Highlands Church Audio Sermons. Today, July 28th, 2019, we continue our series titled Genesis in the Beginning. Today's sermon, The Flood, will be taught to us by Pastor Thomas Slager out of Genesis chapters 6 through 9. Enjoy. Last week we began um, the first part of the story of Noah's Ark, the beginning of the flood, and uh, Bob talked about a lot of things just leading up to where we're going to land today, but this morning I want us to look at it in all of its context. So this morning we are looking at Genesis chapter 6, we're looking at Genesis chapter 7, we're looking at Genesis chapter 8, and we are looking at Genesis chapter 9. Um, It's a story we call um, the flood, Noah's Ark. We refer to it as a lot of different things. Um, It's a story if you've grown up in the church or if you've been around the church for a while, you're probably familiar with. Uh, I think I learned the story at first when I was a young, young kid. I was raised in the church. My parents brought us to church all the time. It was a good thing. Um, It's a great story. Uh, My constant picture that I think, when when I think of Noah's Ark, the The image that comes to my mind is always something like this, right? As in this kind of the picture that we get, like the children's Sunday school story of Noah's Ark, the chewable version of the story where Noah is just happy, there's a critter on his shoulder and he's just like, what's up people? God is good. Uh, But the giraffes are smiling because that's what giraffes do, right? They love to smile. Uh, The hippos are on the top of the boat for some reason. The pandas and the other critters and the lions are very happy. Um, The elephants, they're just thrilled. They're just happy to be a part of this wonderful experience, this journey, this maiden voyage that God sent this beautiful ark on. And this is kind of the story we paint. It's the picture we paint. It's the story we tell. It's the images in the coloring books that we have our kids uh, draw and color in. Essentially, we keep everything above the waterline right? Everything stays above the waterline when we talk about the story of Noah's Ark because we really don't like what happens below the waterline, right? But what we see in, in the story of the scriptures is the God who saved the family is the same God who sent the flood, right? And the God who's responsible for the deliverance is also the God who's responsible for the destruction, So essentially what we do, if we only tell kind of the top half story, if we only tell the story above the waterline, what we do is we diminish God's justice. If we only tell the story below the waterline, then we diminish God's grace and mercy. So what I hope to do this morning is tell the entire story from chapter six all the way through chapter nine that we could look at both ends of the waterline, what happened above and what happened below so we can get a bigger, greater understanding of what's going on in this story. You'll see in your outline three main points. I'm trying to summarize four chapters of the Bible in three points and also make applications. So I, um, I think we're gonna get there. We got there in first hour and I hope to do the same second hour as well. I'm gonna pray for us, um, and then we'll jump in. I would normally read the passage before we pray, but that'd take a long time, and then we'd pray, and then we would just leave, because it's a lot of stuff to cover. So let me, uh, let me pray for us. Thank you for the few sympathy laughs in the back. You're wonderful. 
Uh, Let me pray for us, and then we'll hop into what God has for us this morning. God, thank you um, just for who you are. God, thank you for your word. God, thank you your word never returns void. God, thank you that we can read stories that happened thousands and thousands of years ago, that we can find truth inside of it that applies to our life today. God, this morning as we examine what happened below the waterline and what happened above the waterline, God, would you give us a bigger picture of your grace and mercy and also a bigger picture of your justice. God, we love you and we praise you and ask that you would do an amazing work in our hearts this morning and we ask all these things in the name of your son Jesus and all God's people said, amen. Three points we're going to cover this morning. The first point we're going to look at, they're all points of contrast, by the way. So the first contrasting statement we're going to look at is righteousness and rebellion. Righteousness and rebellion. It's something we see in the beginning of the story and kind of sets the context for the rest of it. Righteousness and rebellion. Let's pick it up in chapter six, verse one. It says this, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them. Okay, I I use this for context because even as a kid, when I thought of the story of the flood, I may be thinking, okay, there's Noah and his family and then maybe there's like 10 other families, right? Because Genesis 1, 2, and 3 just happened so maybe there's not that many people on earth yet. A couple families are getting it wrong but Noah's family is getting it right so God removes the bad ones and just saves the one good one. But what we learned last week is the gap between like four into, into five and into six is like 1,500 years. Okay, so we're not talking the next day, we're talking a millennium and a half. And by all estimations, the population on earth at this point are either high hundreds of millions or low billions. To put that in context, the population of the United States of America is around 330 million. So what we're talking about is probably at least double the total population of our country is is the people on earth living at that time. Just to help us understand exactly what's going on. Genesis chapter six, verse five, verses 11 and 12. He's gonna talk about uh, the rebellion, the bad things that are going on at this time because mankind has, has had plenty of time to populate and fill the earth. That's what verse one told us. Uh, and verse five introduces the types of behavior these people are living in. Verse five, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. We covered this last week. Let's look at it again. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. All all they wanted to do was evil all the time. 100% completely evil all the time. In other words, they're, they're pretty much as bad as they could have gotten. Now, the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt and all flesh had corrupted their way on earth. So we see in a few short chapters how just quickly things have fallen. We had a perfect world in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, Adam and Eve, that whole thing happens. Then we have the fall in Genesis 3, and by chapter 6, there's hundreds of millions, billions of people living contrary to the lifestyle that God has told them to live. Now, in Genesis 1, we saw God create things, and the pattern Genesis 1 followed, God would create something, he would see it, and he would say it was Good, and then he would create something, he would see it, and God would say it was good. The same exact thing is happening here, except God's seeing, and what he's seeing is not good. Verse five, it says, the Lord saw. He looked at his creation. He looked at what had become of all the things that he had made, and what he saw was wickedness. 
In God's sight, what he saw was corruption and violence. God beheld what he had created and what he saw was corruption for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Everything has gone wrong. Everything has gone wrong. An entire generation, millions and millions and millions, potentially billions of people living in a way that's contrary to what God would have them do. They just followed their heart and did whatever it is that they wanted to do. And against the backdrop of this sin, of this depravity, we're introduced to one righteous person. His name's Noah. Genesis chapter six, verses eight and nine. He's the righteous one against the backdrop of all of the rebellion. But Noah found favor He found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. He was blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. You get a picture of a person who was totally, totally different. Completely different. See, God looked at the generation. God looked at the culture. And what God saw was just sin, corruption, violence, things like this. And God looks at Noah. And it says, these are generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. He found favor in the eyes of the Lord. God looked over his creation, sees mostly sin, depravity, chaos, confusion, the whole thing. And he finds favor with one person. So what does that look like? It looks like this. It looks like hundreds of millions of people, potentially billions of people living their life just walking in this direction, right? It says they did whatever desire they had in their heart. Jeremiah 17 verse nine, by the way, says the human heart is deceitful and wickedly sick. No one can understand it, which is why it's dangerous to just follow your heart all the time because that's what's going on in this generation. This generation is saying my heart wants this, therefore I will walk in this direction, I'm just gonna have it my own way. I'm gonna do whatever my heart desires. Whatever I feel like I should do is just the way I'm going to live my life. And it's no accident that God mentions Noah is blameless in his generation because we're supposed to take into account what his generation was doing so that we can see just how crazy his behavior was in walking the exact opposite direction. See, he had hundreds of millions, potentially billions of people living their life in one direction. How simple would it have been for him to just do the same? Just go along with the ways of the world. Everyone else is doing it, why not? But it says he finds favor. It says he walks with God. That's a phrase we use a lot in the church, especially around Christians and stuff. We like to ask the question, how's your walk? You've heard this question before and what we're talking about, how's your walk with God? How's your relationship with the Lord? How's your fellowship with God? How's your personal devotion time, your quiet time? Are you reading your Bible? Are you praying? Are you talking with God? That's what we mean when we say that, how is your walk? Now here is a principle for today, a point in the story that's relevant for us right now. See, against the backdrop of his evil generation of all the sin, of all the chaos, the corruption, Uh, and and just everything that was going on, a generation whose heart was set on evil all the time, Noah looks different. Now against the backdrop of our generation, against the backdrop of our society, our culture, does your life look different? I heard one author put it this way, said if someone was to put you like in one of those lines you see in the police shows where they have to say who done it, was it number one, two, three, four, or five? If, if someone were to line you up in a line like that and ask, your, ask one of your friends, can you point out which one's the Christian, would your friend point to you? 
Is it obvious? Is it clear? Would you be convicted of living your life as a Christian? That's what's going on here. Noah's life looks radically different from the lives of the rest of the world. Our lives should look radically different as well. Are you walking with God or are you walking according to the desires and the passions of your heart? Are you walking with the world? If you are walking with the world, then repent. Repent means do a 180, turn around and begin walking with the Lord. Ask God to forgive you of your sins. He will forgive you of your sins and then help you walk in the direction he's called you to walk. Are you walking with the Lord or are you walking with the world? The second point we see of contrast in our story is deliverance and destruction. Deliverance and destruction. Remember, God is the God of both. He's the God who delivered a family yet destroyed the world. We're not talking about different gods. We're not talking about different um, God on one day versus a God on the other day. We're talking about the same God who's full of justice, yet he's also full of mercy and grace. Genesis 6, 17. Actually, let's do this. Look at, go in your Bibles. Look at Genesis chapter 6, verses 13 through 16 because he starts talking to Noah and telling him what his plan is for this wicked world. Verse 13, and God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And then here's his plan. Here's his instructions to Noah. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. That translates to about 450 feet long. It's breadth 50 cubits that translate to about 75 feet wide. And it's height 30 cubits or about 45 feet high. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower second and third decks for behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Now let's talk about this boat for a second because this sounds like a really big boat. A big, big boat. Estimations say Noah was probably building this thing somewhere in the ballpark of 75-ish years. Um, We have a photo, not of the real one. This is a remake, obviously, in Kentucky from a place called the Ark Encounter. If we could throw that up. Um, Pretty big boat, right? I mean, this is a a couple guys standing by a full-size truck. Just to give you kind of some perspective, this is a a big, like, water tanker over here. 450 feet is about one and a half football fields. They're thinking how, uh, how long this thing was. It, its width is about eight or nine U-Haul trucks. You could just pull into this thing. 45 feet tall is about three, three and a half stories to give us perspective on how big this boat is. And this is the instruction God gives to Noah. Build this boat. Genesis 6, 17 through 18, talking about deliverance and destruction. God says this, Behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but... This is a contrasting conjunction, which is important. We'll come back to that in a second. But I will establish my covenant with you. See, God is the one who's taking responsibility for both these things. Verse 17, for behold, I will bring a flood. This is not God in response to some natural disaster. This isn't God looking down and being like, oh, the levee's broke. We got to save the people. Noah, build a boat and grab some critters. That's not how this happened. God takes responsibility for this. God says, I will destroy. I will destroy. Yet, I will deliver. 
I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Everything shall die, but he will establish his covenant with Noah. Let's look at Genesis chapter seven, verses 11 through 16. God tells them, grab some animals two by two, start, we're gonna load them up, get ready for this whole thing. And in Genesis seven, that whole process begins. Genesis seven, verse 11 says this, in the 600th year of Noah's life, you've got that right, he was 600 years old, which means he started building this thing at the ripe and young age of 525. 75 years building a boat. I'm not gonna ask how many of you are 75 because I've been told that's rude, Um, but can you imagine building a boat for your entire life? Every day, every moment, every hour. Honey, what are you gonna do today? I'm gonna build the boat every day for your whole life. This is what Noah has done. In the 600 year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons entered with them into the ark. They and every beast according to its kind and all the livestock according to their kinds and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature, they went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh into which there was the breath of life and those that entered, male and female, all the flesh went in as God commanded him and the Lord shut him in. He does everything he's told to do and what happens, he gets thousands and thousands and thousands of animals on this boat. He and his family, eight people and thousands of animals. Verse 21, and all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on the dry land and whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, they were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. See, the picture below the waterline is rather grotesque. We're talking about hundreds of millions, potentially billions of people being destroyed at once which is not the types of coloring book photos we see in our kids' coloring books. We don't talk about it. The story above the waterline, the story about gracious, merciful God who delivered one family, that's that's palatable. But again, if all we ever do is preach above the waterline, we diminish God's justice. See, one of the things that carry over uh, a principle for today, a point in the story that's relevant for our life right now is that God hates sin. He hates it. Now, Genesis chapter one says that we've been created in the image, in the likeness of God. Ephesians chapter five, verse one tells us we should imitate God and be like him in all that we say and all that we do. And if this is the way God treats sin, how should we treat the sin in our life? If God's goal is to deliver us out of it and to destroy it, do we dabble? Just kind of dabble with a little bit of sin in our life and it's kind of that personal, private, no one has to know about it type of thing? Or do we destroy it? 
Do we try to kill it, get rid of it? There's a theologian named John Owen. He famously said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. One way you could say this is be drowning the sin out of your life or the sin will be drowning the life out of you. What are we doing with it? Do, 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 I don't know what your, what your thing is. Okay, I don't know what, what, what the sin is that you deal with is. Maybe it's a little bit of anger. You know, that angry, just a little bit of angry, like someone's always worse than you. Someone's, there's always someone who's more angry than you are, so you feel like it's not that big of a deal. God's not cool with it. He destroyed anger from the face of the earth. We should destroy anger from our life. Maybe it's some type of sexual sin, like you can, you can deal with it on your own in the privacy of your own home. No one has to know about it. It doesn't affect anyone else. Yes, it does. It affects everyone else, and God's not cool with it. We ought to destroy that thing from our life. Maybe it's greed, the desire for more and more and more. God destroyed everything. An appetite for more and more and more is not helpful. God's not cool with it. Maybe it's pride, just your endless pursuit of elevating yourself to be number one. God's not cool with it. We shouldn't play around with the things that God intentionally destroyed in Genesis chapter six and verses seven, chapter seven. In the beginning of chapter seven, there's hundreds of millions, billions of people alive on the face of the earth. And at the end of chapter seven, there's eight people. Do you see the seriousness that God feels about our sin? We can't play around with it any longer. Christian, would you make the decision today to destroy the sin that's in your life? because that was God's intent here, destroy sin and deliver people out of it. That's what God wants for us. I hope that's what you want for your life as well. The third point of contrast we see in our story this morning is faithfulness and folly. Faithfulness and folly. Noah lived a pretty good life. He did a lot of good things. He's, he's faithful. He was found faithful. God placed his favor on him. He was, he was faithful in the eyes of the Lord. God saw him as righteous. God saw him as blameless. God saw him as very different than the rest of his generation. Pretty faithful dude. Also kind of a fool. There's a weird ending to the story of Noah's life, which we'll get to uh, momentarily. But first, let's look at his faithfulness. Speaking of Noah, Hebrews chapter 11, verse seven says this, by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen. Okay, so this idea of a worldwide global flood, never been seen before. God shows up and says, Noah, this is what's gonna happen. So Noah, in reverent fear, okay, it's okay to do things out of fear, by the way, because that's what Noah did. God saw Noah and said, Noah, I'm going to destroy everyone. I'm sending a flood. Would you build a boat? Yeah, that sounds way better than drowning. I'd rather build the boat. As he responds in fear, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that came by faith. Because of his faith, because of his trust in God, he was granted righteousness. We see this in Hebrews chapter 11. We call it the hall of faith. It's where all like the heroes of the Bible land. And we look at this and we see incredible faith from all of these people. If we go back and look at Noah's life, 
Genesis chapter six, God says, I'm destroying everything, build a giant boat, 450 feet long, uh, 75 feet wide, 45 feet tall. Chapter six, verse 22 says, Noah did this. He did all God commanded him. No questions, no, but, but God, just, he just did it. A bunch of years later, probably around 75, God says, the storm's coming in seven days, start loading up. Chapter seven, verse five says, and Noah did all that God commanded him. God says, it's time to get on the boat. Start loading things into the boat. Chapter seven, verse nine, Noah did as God had commanded him. Chapter seven, verse 16, God says, this is it. Get everyone aboard. Seven sixteen. Noah went in as God commanded him. He's faithful through the end of it. God speaks, Noah listens, and he does. In fact, I don't know if you've caught on to this, throughout the entire story of the flood, Noah doesn't say a word. We highlight him as the main character. It's pretty hard to have a main character who never speaks. The main character of the flood is God. It shows us who God is. It shows us that God is merciful and gracious, yet below the waterline, God is just. That God rewards the righteous, but he punishes the rebels. That God's the God of deliverance, but God's also the God of destruction. Throughout Noah's life, we see his faithfulness. Chapter eight, verses 13 through 15, to look again at the faithfulness of Noah. Verse 13, in the 600 year and first year, so they've been on the boat for a very long time. In the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. Now, I remember a specific time in Sunday school where a Sunday school teacher asked the question, and this is the question. They said, how long was Moses on the ark? So we all stopped and we thought. And we're like, I'm gonna get this right. And I said, Moses was on the ark for 40 days and 40 nights. And she said, ha! Moses was never on the ark. Noah was on the ark. And he was on the ark for about 370 days. Now, I don't know if she was just trying to make me feel like an idiot, which she did. Um, I assure you, our Sunday school teachers would never do anything like this. Um, but, but to think, that's how long Noah had been on this boat. We like to think he's been there for 40 days and 40 nights. It rained for 40 days and 40 nights, but if you do the math uh, in, in the whole scripture or you just do the Google search, what you figure out is they've been on the boat for 370 days. 370 days. A very long cruise to the beautiful mountains of Ararat with thousands and thousands of stinking animals and tons of family drama. Now what happens, it says they, they finally hit dry land. He does that thing with the birds. Go back and read the story, chapter six through chapter nine because we are leaving so much out this morning to try to get the big picture of the passage. They, they hit dry land. Noah looks out. He sees dry land. Hooray, we've made it. And then it says they wait for two more months. Two more months before they even get off the boat. Why? Because God hadn't told them to get off the boat yet. Here is how I equate this. Let's imagine you're taking your family to Disneyland. Okay? It takes you 10 months to get to Disneyland. And the whole time you're dealing with, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Plus, they brought thousands of pets, not just the dog, thousands and thousands and thousands of critters. We finally hit dry land. We look out the window. Everyone says, hooray, Disneyland. We've made it. I'm getting out. 
Right, if we're there, I'm getting out of the boat because I, I've made it dry land, it's good to go. Not him. He sticks around and continues to deal with, but, I, but dad, I see it, it's right there, Disneyland, Star Wars land, churros, it's right there. He stays put. Doesn't move for two whole months. Verse 14, it says, In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, after two months of a boat parked on top of dry land, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Verse 18, scroll down. So Noah went out, his sons and his wife and, and everything that moves on the earth were went out by families from the ark. Everything gets off. Now, here's the point. God told Noah to go and do something, so he went and did it. And then God went silent for about 10 months. Though Noah had arrived at what he thought was the final culmination of his job, instead of going out, he continued to wait upon the voice of the Lord. Now, I don't know what type of thing you're facing in your life where you feel like God told you, go do this. Go do this. So you dropped what you were doing and you went and did this thing. You're trying to be faithful. And then just like we see in the story, God's voice goes silent. He opened up a door, told you to walk through it, so you walked through it, and now you're just not sure what to do next. What do you do? You go back where he told you to leave? You take matters into your own hands? You just get off the boat because that's what you feel like is the thing you're supposed to do? Not Noah. He continues walking in the same direction and just waiting on the Lord. Perhaps whatever situation we're finding, whatever's going on in your lives this morning, you'd heed his example and just be faithful and wait upon the Lord. Because eventually, just like in this story, God's voice will show up again and he'll lead you and guide you and show you what he wants. Noah was a faithful, faithful man. Chapter eight, verse 20, the first thing he does when he gets off the ark, then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Noah has just spent the last year trying to keep all of these stinky things alive. And the first thing he does when he gets to the shore, after all of his hard work, he gives up his hard work to the Lord and said, God, this is for you. He gives it all. God, this is for you. It's his faith. He, he's, he's continuing to walk with the Lord and he offers the best that he has. And the Lord smells it and he says it's a pleasing aroma. God, again, is pleased by the actions of Noah. Now, it'd be great to say the story ends there and Noah's family lived faithful lives forever. There was no more drama. No one did anything wrong. Noah lived the rest of his days walking with the Lord, never failed. Story doesn't end like that. Chapter nine, verse 20 says this, Noah began to be a man of the soil. All right, agriculture, he's planting and doing that whole deal. He planted a vineyard. And he drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. So the first picture we get of Noah is this faithful guy does exactly what God tells him to do. He's, he does all the work, does all the labor, works for 75 years, does all these things, gets off the boat, makes sacrifices to the Lord. The next glimpse we get of Noah is drunk naked camping. 
is what we get. If you continue in the story, it says one of his sons named Ham, they walk in and, and he sees his dad who's laying in his tent uncovered and he goes, guys, you're not going to believe what dad did, which was also foolish. So his brothers come in, it says they walk backwards lest they bring shame to their father. They cover his nakedness and then they leave. Noah awakes from his drunken stupor and what he says, the first words out of his mouth is, cursed be Canaan, this is the son of Ham. A servant of servants shall he be to his brother. See, Noah's learned a lesson. God is incredibly serious about sin. Very, very serious about sin. And since God is serious about sin, Noah decides as a father, he too will be serious about sin. He says, cursed are you, why? Because what you've done is foolish. What you've done is sinful. Verse 26, he also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. In the same way he responded before, when he saw that God had delivered him from something, began to bless and worship the name of our Lord, so here too he recognizes that sin is awful, needs to be dealt with, and in the very next sentence chooses to bless and honor the name of our Lord. Now, here is a principle that we learn in the story that for certainly crosses over into our life today. Noah was a faithful man of God, yet even still, he was capable of making foolish decisions. Now, friends, this is the story in each and every single one of us if we claim the name of Jesus and the name of Christian. Though we have faith in Jesus, our tendency to act like a fool remains. The Apostle Paul spoke of this in Romans chapter 7, verses 21 through 25. He says this, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. So I want to do the right thing. I want to be faithful. I want to walk with God. I want to live the life that God has called me to live. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, okay? The, the law of God that's written on my heart, my spirit. I, 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 I want to honor him. I, I delight in trying to do the right thing. But I see in my members, in my flesh, in my, my sinful nature, in, in my selfish desires, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. See, this is the fight we all face each and every single day. See, because someday we'll be perfected where all we'll want to do is worship God and delight in the law of the Lord and all we will ever do is delight in the law of the Lord. But for now, we're trapped in this halfway mark. Well, though I want to delight in the law of the Lord, there's still this thing inside of me that wants to delight in the law of sin. Though I want to be faithful, though I want to walk with God, though I want to remain humble and serve my Lord and serve my Savior, I still find myself doing foolish things. And this is the place the Apostle Paul found himself in. So he poses a question. He says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And the response, the response we all should come to this morning, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thank God through Jesus that I find forgiveness, that I find grace, that even at my best attempt to live a faithful life and walk uh, just in servanthood to the Lord and though I continue to fail and act foolishly that God forgives me, he gives me grace, he gives me mercy and still invites me to sit at his table and be a part of his family. So friends, I'm not sure where you're at this morning. If we talk about righteousness and rebellion, maybe you find yourself this morning living a life of rebellion or maybe you find yourself this morning walking with the Lord. Whatever it might be, find out where you're at. Are you walking with the world or are you walking with the Lord? 
deliverance and destruction, we see that God is serious about our sin. Are you serious about yours? Are you doing what it takes to destroy the sin from your life or are you allowing the sin in your life to destroy you? We see a story of faithfulness and foolishness. It's all of our story. Though we do our best to remain faithful, to walk with the Lord, we still find ourselves doing foolish things. This morning, would you cry out to the Lord just as Paul did and say, who can save me from this body of death and then give thanks to the God who delivers us through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. This morning, we're gonna follow up and respond to our message time and our whole service with communion. So I'd ask those who are serving us to begin serving those. You're gonna see two cups. Um, The bottom cup is gonna have a little oyster soup cracker in it and the top cup is gonna have some grape juice. You could hold on to those for just a moment. We ended our time last week uh, with Pastor Bob talking about how Jesus was like the ark how Jesus was like the ark. Because we see the story of the flood that that Noah trusts God and because he trusts God, he's delivered from destruction into righteousness. It's the same way this works with with, with the Lord. Okay, we, we trust God, we trust that Jesus paid the sacrifice for our sins and when we place our faith in him, when we trust him, we're delivered from the wrath, the justice, the destruction that we deserve. God gives us grace and mercy and we enter into the family of God. Jesus is just like the ark. He saves us from destruction and delivers us into righteousness with the Lord and communion is an opportunity for us to remember that. I'd ask you to ask two questions of yourself this morning before partaking in communion. The first one is this, am I different than the world? Am I different than the world? What's going on in your life? Does your life look the way that God would have it look? And then secondly, what are you doing with the sin in your life? Are you dabbling in it? or are you trying to destroy it just as Christ did on our behalf? Let me pray for us and then we'll respond with worship and communion. God, thank you for who you are. God, thank you for delivering us from your destruction, from your wrath, and inviting us to be a part of your family. God, you're so, so good to us. We don't deserve your grace. We don't deserve your forgiveness, but God, you still give it to us. Lord, right now, as we sit and we reflect upon the message and also reflect and examine our hearts before we take communion, God, I ask that you'd help us consider our life. What does our life look like? God, are we living the life that you've called us to live, God, and also how are we dealing with our sin? Jesus, we know that you dealt with our sin on a cross, yet still sometimes we choose to live in it. This morning, would we forsake our sin? Would we choose to kill it? Would we choose to allow it to die on the cross just like it did on that day? God, thank you for an opportunity to remember your son this morning. Would we not miss it, but would we consider everything that you've done for us on the cross through your son? We love you, amen. On the night that Jesus was arrested and betrayed, they were having a meal in an upper room. He was with his closest friends, his disciples. During the meal, Jesus took a piece of bread. He broke it. He looked at his disciples and he said, this bread represents my body broken for you. Would you do this in remembrance of him? In the same way, he took a cup and he looked at his disciples and he said, this cup represents my blood poured out for you. Would you do this as often as you do it in remembrance of him?
friends, that the broken body and spilled blood of Jesus, his death and resurrection is what brings us, it's that deliverance from God's wrath that brings us into right relationship with him. Would we worship him, would we respond today in joyful song and in exuberant hearts of what God has done for us through his son Jesus. Let me pray for us once more and then we'll respond and worship. God, thank you for what you've done for us, God. We don't deserve it. That's the plain and simple truth, God. We just don't deserve it. We deserve destruction. We deserve punishment. But God, you've placed your affection and your favor upon us. God, thank you for loving us. Would you help us live faithful lives that worship and glorify you? God, that we find ourselves in moments of foolishness, of living in our sin, would we call out to you and say, God, who can save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. God, thank you for what you've done for us. Thank you for your son, Jesus, the one who delivered us into right relationship with you. It's his name that we rejoice this morning. It's his name that we lift high this morning. And it's in his name that we ask all of these things. The name of Jesus, amen. He is the Lord of all this morning. If you would like to confess that, if you would like to begin a relationship with the Lord, if you this morning would decide that from this day forward, you would like to walk with God, we'll be down front. I'd love to talk with you, tell you how that, how, for how that to happen. Someone will be down here to pray with you, to love on you, to embrace you, to celebrate with you. For the rest of us, he is Lord of all, is he not? Would we go out today and faithfully serve our Lord and would we love one another as we do it? Bless you, folks. Bye.